Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. A very warm welcome to this new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have another great discussion ahead. With me are Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. And uh, just a quick note on Chris Bloomstrand, whom we've loved having on the podcast, uh, and Chris has enjoyed it as well. Um, he will be on uh, more sporadically going forward just because of the time commitment involved. Uh, so stay tuned. And uh, some of our future episodes, uh, we hope to have Chris back. I know that uh, for a good uh, bit of the next uh, couple of months, he'll be working on his annual letter. And some of you may know uh, how in-depth uh, and comprehensive those are. So I'm sure that's going to take up a lot of his time. But as soon as uh, we can have him back on, uh, we will love to uh, to do that. And today, uh, let's start with Elliot. Uh, then we'll go to Phil. And finally, I'm going to address a uh, listener question uh, toward the end. Go ahead, Elliot. All right. Thank you, John. So I want to talk about hashtag never sell, which was introduced to Twitter by uh, one of my favorite accounts out there, Jerry Cap at Jerry Cap. Um, and, you know, the idea behind never sell, I mean, there's kind of a half facetious side to it, half somewhat true side to it. And I always find those kinds of concepts, uh, especially in meme form, kind of interesting. So, you know, one of the ideas that I was introduced to uh, through Chris Meyer, who wrote The Outstanding 100 Baggers, um, was the coffee can portfolio, which was introduced first by Robert Kirby. This idea that you buy your favorite stocks and let them sit for 10 years, and only then do you revisit it. Um, at the time, the book 100 to 1 in the Stock Market by Thomas Phelps was actually out of print. And, you know, I had heard of the book. I had heard people reference that, it was actually one of the most influential books on Charlie Munger himself, and that his investing uh, worldview was largely, you know, in many respects, shaped by the book. Um, not long after Chris's book was published, which was truly fantastic, and I strongly recommend it to everyone. And a brief aside, I got to meet Chris through the MOI Global um, Idea Week convention in Switzerland. It, really sharp guy, really interesting thinker. Um, has written a couple other really good books as well. So, you know, through through reading about these things, I, I eventually saw that Thomas Phelps 101, the original, was, was released. Um, and you could buy it on Amazon right now, in fact. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that book was published in 1972. And, well, one of the core points of the book is you're, you're supposed to, as an investor, search for these companies that are going to be truly phenomenal, that you can make one decision, buy, hold on to for a really long time. And so Phelps kind of went back to the early 1900s, looked at all these companies that had performed uh, good enough to, to achieve 100 to 1 on a per share basis, so not on a market cap basis, um, so that an investor who bought a share would make 100 times their original investment. And you know he studied like what sorts of common traits all these companies had, what you as an investor were supposed to look for. And obviously, you know there's some combination of cheapness 
and um, you know, enduring capacity for the business for the long run. Um, I think that kind of goes without saying if something's going to last a really long time and return to uh, phenomenal returns to that extent. Um, but you know, so back to the point, it was published in 1972. And so what's interesting about that timing is maybe one can say, you know, especially at the time, I'd imagine people sitting there saying like, okay, a book like this doesn't come out at the bottom. This is clearly the sign of a top. Um, when you're telling people to extend their timeframes and think in these terms and act in this way. And sure enough, you know, for the next decade, basically, you know, shortly thereafter, um, the stock market entered a prolonged bear market. But, you know, I think there are a few interesting things. Um, you can really tell that Munger did, in fact, internalize this book. Several of the parables that we know Charlie Munger for, I, you know, seem to have originated in this book, in fact. So it's actually quite interesting from that perspective. And, you know, I think interestingly, you fast forward a long time, and perhaps despite having uh, experienced a bear market shortly thereafter, um, the lessons and the perspective of the book were pretty damn right in a lot of respects. So, you know, um, I want to talk about Never Sell because I think a lot of uh, people right now are you seeing signs of froth in the market, seeing things that are, you know, really bizarre. Um, today, as we do this, Airbnb has IPO'd and it's jumped 3x what was already a pretty aggressive pricing. So a $50 billion company that, you know, um, perhaps was on the brink when COVID started is now worth $150 billion. And I say the, the word worth rather loosely here. Um, but all that said, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously you can't never sell through any situation. Um, I've actually spoken with Jerry Cap about positions he has in fact sold and regretted not never selling with. Um, but I do think there is an important framework and an important way to think that never sell introduces conceptually. Um, to me, it's more like one of those things that's a lifestyle that you treat somewhat loosely. So you do sell when things reach certain places. But um, so what, what is the idea? To me, the idea is twofold. Um, it's a framework for thinking about the kinds of stocks you want to own. Um, you want to own in a never sell framework, really high quality companies. You want really strong management teams that are thinking for the long term, whose incentives are geared toward the long term. And um, you, know, you want businesses themselves that have enduring traits that you could have some degree of confidence they'll be around in a while. Lastly, you, you need some kind of cheapness. So by and large, expensive stocks did not achieve 100 to 1, which you know, seems to make a lot of sense. If something's expected to do tremendous things, even upon delivering on those tremendous things, it's really hard uh, to have outstanding returns because some portion of that was already priced in. And the second important framework, I think, is how to manage your portfolio. Um, you know, one of the advantages Buffett has in how he structured Berkshire is that there's always money coming in. So to say I want to buy something in a punch card kind of way and, you know, never never think about selling it, well, you could dilute it by, for example, buying, uh, you know, a larger insurance group that's overcapitalized. And then you've effectively sold down half that position without having to actually sell a share. That's kind of easy, right? That's pretty nice. But we don't all have that luxury of cash coming in at all times. So when we want to make a uh, buy decision, we inherently have to make a sell decision under the assumption that we are fully invested. Not saying that I am right now. I'm not uh, kind of close to it, closer than I thought I'd be at this point. Um, 
okay, sorry for that digression, but we we do really legitimately have to make two decisions for every one decision we make, right? I could decide I want to buy this stock tomorrow, but if I don't have room for it in my portfolio, I can't actually buy it. And there is something called decision fatigue, which I think is you know, one of the more important behavior effects. It's the exact reason why Steve Jobs wore a black turtleneck every single day because he wanted to make one less decision every day, right? So, you know, I think he recognized the power of simplifying his life in that sense. The fewer decisions you make, the better you will treat the really important, the really profound decisions. And at the same token, um, you know, there's something to be said about having just like a much easier uh, mental amount of stuff flowing through your brain as you try to make decisions. So, you know, when you do make really big decisions, you want to be able to focus on them and put your effort, your mental energy toward it. And now there's one last thing that I want to um, kind of hammer on here before opening it up to the crowd. I'd been tweeting about this earlier in the week, um, this idea of, uh, you know, a, being a punch card investor, making only 20 uh, investments. And I had said on Twitter that to me, I think that's a really important concept, but a less talked about is this idea that there are no called strikes. And, you know, I think it's easier to internalize this idea that there are no called strikes. And in this environment, in this time where uh, never sell seems you know, appealing and the only right answer. Um, we do have to, you know, remember that all FOMO should be checked at the door um, when you start investing, that you can't be uh, compelled to action by your environment. The only thing that can lead you to action is really uh, robust analysis and a process and a discipline that is internalized that you measure on your own inner scorecard, not compared to everything else that's happening out there. Um, and so I think that's really important. And I do think a lot of these things, while they may not seem directly related, tie uh, pretty fully back to never sell. So I want to open this up, how you guys think about maybe maybe even the sell discipline, but this idea of never sell and you know tying it up to other areas. Well, there's a lot there. I, I guess I would say that the, the things that jumped out at me uh, were decision fatigue, which is 100% real. And I think that's why uh, anybody who's been doing this more than maybe five years would tell you the fewer decisions you can make, the better. And the best decisions you make are often the ones that either continuously throw up no-brainer decisions in front of you. So if you've bought a good business and it continues to get better, there's really nothing else to think about, right? It's pretty easy. Uh, whereas if you you know, do something that requires a constant rinse and repeat style process, that's a much more exhausting and tiresome process to have to run. Um, and, and just having to constantly keep tabs on something that's changing and it, often for the worse and, and bouncing up and down is is very real. And it's just inevitable that you're going to make more mistakes in that kind of environment. So um, obviously the never sell concept has tons of validity there. It can just get taken way too far. So I guess the other thing that jumped out was that I think we all want to hold things as long as we can. I think a lot of people talk about that more than they actually practice it. But at the same time, it can also become a bit of, it's sort of dogma, I think, amongst a certain camp of investors where they think it's almost cool or macho to hold really long or at least talk about holding forever. Um, and that's just kind of silly too. I mean, look, the, the base rate of businesses that can really thrive and prosper over more than five or 10 years gets to be pretty low. It certainly puts you in the vast minority of businesses at that point. So I don't think there's any point in being dogmatic and saying, I'm going to never sell. Um, 
you know, I, I'd love to be able to find the data. I think Jason Zweig has written about this. I don't think he's ever been able to find data. I'm not sure how you'd really track it down without getting, you know, some large custodian or somebody to analyze the data and, and look at it. But, um, you know, if you were to just go back and let's say, what's the best company that's compounded enormous value over the last 20 or 30 years? Let's maybe pick Amazon or something. There have been at least three or four, I think it's more like five or six drawdowns of more than 50% over that period. How many original shareholders that would have now probably been loving to talk about never sell or whatever, how many of them actually didn't sell through that period? Right? I mean, it's probably vanishingly few that have actually realized that entire run of compounded value over that period. It's really hard. It's much harder than it seems. And then Secondarily, I mean, how many people, I'll never forget one of my earliest investors. Um, I, I hate to call out a company by name in, the, in a negative light, but one of my earliest investors initially told me that um, I, I was only going to be getting a relatively small allocation from him because he had a gigantic position in Sears Holding. And that was literally a never sell for him. And this was in, you know, 2014. So, um, you know, look, I think it, the, the never sell concept as it's applied to businesses, great businesses stumble, smart people make mistakes, facts change, situations change. I, I, it's just such a high bar to say you're never going to sell. Personally, I want to find things that I don't have to sell. Um, I want to find things I can hold for long periods. If everything goes even anywhere close to plan, I'm not looking to turn the portfolio and, and have lots of churn there. But at the same time, the never sell concept or, you know, the the gunslinger mentality of always doubling down when when something declines sort of mechanically, I, I, that doesn't make much sense to me either. But I, I will say too that the one thing um, that also stood out too about what you said about inflows, I've always been enormously impressed with Tom Gaynor at Markel for a couple of reasons. And, and one of them most notably is that he's really intellectually honest about what he knows and what he doesn't know. And I think one of the things he's exploited to incredible advantage over the years is that they've had inflows, I think, every month. Um, the last time I heard him talk about it was him citing the fact that they had inflows in October, September and October of 2008. And so as the world's crashing down around him, you know, not only is he not worried about redemptions, he's got new money coming in to deploy, which just makes life so much easier. So he'll be the first to tell you that he doesn't need to be the smartest guy in the world to do pretty well when everyone else is panicking and freaking out and worry about worrying about their inherent asset liability mismatch, you know, the, the never sell mentality is a lot easier to put to work profitably when you can sit there and say, all right, well, I don't really need to sell. I can actually sit on this because I've got new money coming in to deploy. Now, of course, the trick is how do you find a business that's as great as Markel is to keep that money coming in every month, even in something like the fall of 2008. That's a whole separate conversation, but that that's certainly makes life easier, that's for sure. Yeah, I'll jump in. Uh, you know, I've seen this never sell hashtag popping up more and more on Twitter. Um, and we can talk about the merits of the idea. Um, but I personally don't like the hashtag itself because I feel like it's not really an intellectual exercise uh, that went into that, but it's simply a reading of the temperature of the market and where we're at today. Uh, because if I recall correctly, I wasn't seeing never sell back in March. Uh, it really wasn't <laughs> anybody uh, anybody tweeting about that uh, on March the 16th. So um, 
I, I just feel like um, this also, if you take it literally, the never uh, is obviously wrong uh, because the whole point of investing is that you're going to uh, have more money in the future to do what you actually want to do with the money. Or even if you want to uh, donate the money, uh, the, the the foundation that you give the money to will have to sell. So I guess it's more of a question when to sell would be perhaps a, a, a useful discussion. And I guess the, the point of never sell is to say, um, wait a really long time before you sell. I've personally struggled with that sell decision because I like to buy things really cheap. And then how do you square that or, or really undervalued? How do you square that with not selling when a stock has moved up and is now less undervalued and you perhaps see other things in the market that you think are more undervalued? And I'll admit, often I'm wrong. Often, you know, the thing that I sold and ends up doing much better than whatever I bought uh, that I thought was more undervalued. Um, so that is a real struggle for me, just intellectually and also in terms of execution, is to know when to sell. Um, there's actually a really helpful uh, screen uh, that I found um, by Jim O'Shaughnessy called the Tiny Titans screen. Uh, it's available on the AAII website, that's the American Association of Individual Investors, uh, it has outperformed tremendously over the long term. And um, that screen actually has a value factor as well as a momentum factor. And it's a tiny titans, meaning size is also figured in, so it takes uh, smaller companies. But basically, it buys companies that have um, high relative strength over the past year, but are still trading at less than one times sales. And they end up doing very, very well. So I guess there is some kind of, um, you know, research or quantitative backing to this idea that if an undervalued stock is starting to perform, stick with it. Um, as long as it's still undervalued based on some some measure. But if you sell it just as it's starting to outperform, you're probably giving up a lot of alpha uh, because it's being transformed by the market in terms of the perception. Um, and maybe just one last kind of comment on never sell, a little bit cynical perhaps, but I feel like never sell has a little bit of um, kind of the, the language or the idea of a cartel, kind of like if you take Tesla, everybody knows it's really highly priced, um, but if everyone just says never sell and everybody actually does that, it could go to infinity, right? So it's like, let's, let's create this cartel, but everybody's swearing to never sell. And of course it doesn't work because the market's made up of a ton of factors. And even in OPEC, you have countries cheating. So obviously here, uh, people will sell at some point and they are selling every day. Uh, but I just think it has a little bit of a smell of that kind of trying to convince others to just stick with things that might be wildly overvalued. So true. It's like HODL and Bitcoin from 2017 when things were going parabolic. And I think it does signal some degree of reflexivity to it all. And as Soros would say, reflexivity goes one way and then it goes the other. There's no stable equilibrium in there. 
Um, you guys made a lot of interesting points there. I, I thought it would help to contextualize exactly how far the Amazon drawdown was if you wanted to hold it uh, for the last 20 years. You, you would have had to withstand a 90% drawdown at the worst. So, you know, um, the price for truly phenomenal returns is a really strong stomach, I think. Or uh, or the price is a lot of stress. The, the only way to get there is a really strong stomach, perhaps. Um, I don't know if anyone, you know, other than Bezos himself was able to. Um yeah, the inflows for rebalancing is a really interesting point. It's an important one too because I think you know one one of the nice consequences is without selling, you could rebalance your portfolio and effectively sell something. So it's kind of a cop out because you could take a position from ten percent down to five percent just by adding, you know, uh, dub- doubling the the size of your portfolio with cash. I, I think that's a really powerful point on from John on reading the temperature of the market. Like you totally. Um, it's what I was trying, the point I was trying to make, uh, reading the temperature on the market being like, you don't see never sell at the bottom. Um, yeah, that was, that was part of what I was trying to make by highlighting exactly when Phelps' book was published, right? You know, people say like, that's not a book you see at bottoms, which is pretty true. That said, I do think there were a lot of people um, whose big lesson out of the great financial crisis was in fact, never sell. And perhaps behaviorally, that explains a lot of why um, the the drawdowns we've had since the financial crisis have been shorter in nature, and um, you know the the bid has been somewhat relentless. That people realize, like, whoa, if we could get through that, then I probably shouldn't sell through anything. Uh, knowing some people who sold at incredibly poor times in 08, 09. Um, one thing Phil said on on uh, decision fatigue about uh, people make more mistakes in that environment. I 100% agree. One of the most important lines that I was introduced to was this idea that mistakes beget mistakes. Um, so your first mistake leads you to make decisions that are suboptimal and try to recover the first mistake as opposed to being optimal in an absolute sense. And you know that that that's how you get into further mistakes. And so you know it's kind of a snowball effect, and it could be really really bad. I'm fascinated by this idea of the tiny titans, by the way. I think that's really interesting. You know, I've long said about myself, I want to buy stocks that are GARP and hold them when they're growth and momentum. Like, that's my goal. Like, I, I look for things with some degree of optionality where I could kind of do that. Um, and, you know, it's often hard to hold through the growth and momentum phase. Um, you know, I find myself having to sit on my hands. That said, I mean, it doesn't happen that often. So, you know, maybe one or two ever uh, end up truly that way. Roku has been a pretty special one in that sense for me. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's been hard, like grappling with, do I sell? Do I trim some? Um, you know, I, I have sometimes have scratched the itch by selling like pretty juicy premium and near-term calls. And, you know, just having done that several times over, the call premium is especially juicy in the market right now, um, which is kind of, like an interesting observation. Um, but yeah, you guys made, made a lot of really good points in there. And so this is an interesting yeah. topic. Go ahead, Phil. It is. Yeah. I was just going to add a couple of things. I never actually answered one of your direct questions, which was how I sell. And I guess the short answer is not very well. And it's something I'm always trying to improve. It's always been easier for me to see, uh, you know, the, the right path on a buy decision. I think the sell decision is much harder. It would be great to be in Tom Gaynor's shoes and just to be able to manage the the relative portfolio, I guess, through through inflows rather than you'd you'd think that the forcing mechanism mechanism of of scarce capital would would be helpful. But in a lot of cases, I think to your point, a mistake begets a mistake. Um, sort of like golf, you hit one bad shot and get into trouble and you try to hit a hero recovery shot and it actually compounds your mistake and makes the situation worse. Instead of just taking a bogey or something and moving on, you get 
into triple land pretty quickly. So I think that's, um, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I, the three kind of three tier decision that I make is I always sell as soon as I realize I've made any sort of mistake in judgment or analysis, that's an easy one. Harder than is if there's been some underlying change in the business. Either the competitive landscape has shifted, you know, some sort of issue with the product or service, a management problem, a management shift, a cultural decay, something like that. Not easy, but it's usually somewhat clear if you're being honest with yourself. And then, of course, the hardest one is just a better idea and particularly a better idea given the information that you have, you know, little things like taxes and transactional costs, that sort of thing. Um, so I, to your point though, about, um, the psychology of it and what we learned about never sell through the financial crisis or through March and April of 2020, I think that's a great point. It's something I think about a lot. I mean, it's something I was thinking about almost every chapter when I was reading that book since yesterday, which we talked about last week, where, you know, I think there was a lot of similarity then in that there were these great waves of optimism where asset prices would crash and then come right back up in a fairly short period only to revert back down and keep making new lows every few years such that at the end of a decade, you were way underwater. And look, we saw some of that from the the post-2000 high in a lot of NASDAQ and technology names, but it really wasn't the same at all. And I, you know, of course, the the Fed watchers or the Fed haters will say, well, it's all because we have free money and this Fed put and whatever. And that's at least partially true. I think more than anything, though, you've had sort of the the broad acceptance of investing from the from the general public. You've had a, a almost elimination of trading costs and commissions and, and frictional expenses like that. And look, you you still are very much short assets. Um, for most people's retirements, let alone, you know, their everyday living in some cases. And so the casinofication of of what's, you know, supposed to be a, a prudent, rational, cold, dispassionate capital allocation market, you know, you, you, people look around and say, well, if I can just find the next Airbnb that's going to be 40x on my money as a venture capitalist or even 3x my money in one day on an IPO, that's really all they're thinking about. And so that leads to this, you know, every time if something goes down, it's just an opportunity to buy more. Um, and, and you still have lots and lots of liquidity on the sideline. So I think that explains quite a bit of what we've seen in the last, certainly the last year and, and more broadly in the last 5, 10 and 20 years, I think. Well, now that we've been trained to expect uh, a market to rebound every time it crashes, it'll be really interesting to see if that doesn't happen for once. Right. Yeah. Um, although, you know, with the Fed uh, doing what it's doing, it's hard to see that in nominal terms over time. And before I move on to you, Phil, for your topic of the week, I'll just second uh, Elliot's recommendation of um, of the book uh, Hundred Baggers by Chris Mayer. It's a really terrific book, and I think for those who want to think more about holding on to great companies for the long term, uh, it's 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 a wonderful read. Over to you, Phil. Great, thanks, John. So I thought this week um, I would talk about something I've been thinking about for a while, and I'm always interested in in various business models and various business approaches. And something that's getting a lot of attention these days, and for good reason, is the concept of a subscription business or a subscription model. And it's one of those very simple, very obvious ideas that's also just incredibly powerful. 
And I think what's so interesting about it is, you know, we were going back to sports some time ago and talking about how, well, yeah, any idiot should have figured out that it makes more sense to shoot a lot of threes rather than a lot of mid-range jumpers because it's worth more. And any idiot should have figured out that it makes sense to have a subscription model, you know, rather than lots of other choices you could have. I mean, you get paid up front. It helps your working capital. It's, you know, the recurring revenue is often more predictable, uh, it lowers, it, at least some people would argue, it lowers your cost of capital because investors like it so much, et cetera, et cetera. And look, this is not a new concept, right? I mean, newspapers figured this out, you know, almost a century ago in many cases. And I think one of the lessons there is that tides can still change and, and swamp the boat there. But, you know, look, we've we've now gone on and, and newspapers may be a mostly dying breed, but you have newsletters that have popped up in a lot of ways enabled by technology that have replaced them in some ways. I mean, one really interesting replacement is is The Athletic, which is a, a sports uh, online newspaper, for lack of a better word, where they literally raised venture capital to go out and hire, uh, in many cases, laid off beat writers for a lot of the local sports teams. They actually started, I think, with the first city and was Chicago, where they just went around and said, we're going to cover all the major sports teams in Chicago with all the local journalists that aren't otherwise employed at the moment. And, uh, you know, they're up to most every major city, I think, in the last three years they're now covering, uh, including Canada. And, and they've expanded, I think, in a lot a lot of cases to Europe. And it's it's probably not working too well as a business at the bottom line yet, but it's certainly proven palatable. There are over a million subscribers. It's something like $2 a month. So it's certainly proven viable in, in that regard. If you look at um, one of the best businesses in the last couple of decades we were talking about earlier, Amazon Prime, you know, subset of Amazon's overall success, but they certainly got, they'll be the first to admit, they got that idea from Costco and Costco got that idea from Saul Price at, at Price Club. Um, this concept, and this is where subscription businesses do get me really interested and really excited, is the concept of taking a membership fee to both drive your affinity, drive your loyalty, drive your propensity to spend at that business, but then taking that good favor, that goodwill and redeploying it into the business to make the business itself more desirable as Costco has so famously done by capping gross margins and, and reinvesting the membership fee and saying the membership fee is basically all we're going to make kind of at the operating margin level. And that way, it, people know that the price discovery there is just sort of a foregone conclusion. It's a no-brainer. Um, that's enormously powerful. To a lesser extent, you've seen it in media, Netflix, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, Disney+, Plus, Hulu. Um, it is really interesting. Mind Safety Disclosures has written a great presentation about the New York Times. You know, a lot of people love to point at the quote-unquote failing New York Times. They now have six times more subscribers than they did at the print era peak a decade or two ago. And they've certainly done it with a subscription model in the digital world that has more than more than succeeded. Uh, if you think back to software, you know that was never a subscription business, never thought of as a subscription business until um, I think Adobe was really one of the first paradigm shifts there, um, followed shortly by Microsoft. I mean, Salesforce kind of did it very early on too. But we're really talking about the last, you know, ten or twenty years. This is you know software. As an industry, certainly goes back further than that, but they didn't figure out, as smart as they are, they didn't figure out the subscription business right away. Um, you're seeing it leak. I think the lot, a lot of the attention that was put on Dollar Shave Club was kind of silly, but they certainly figured out something very interesting there in, in consumer products. Um, even something as far afield as an old, old line manufacturer like Rolls-Royce, where when they manufacture 
uh, a jet engine for a commercial airliner, they basically do it at break even or a small loss and sell a subscription on the maintenance. They call it power by the hour, where they provide the the maintenance for the engine based on how much you use it. Um, so it's really, really, really interesting. Now, look, despite all those advantages, which again, I think the main one really is that it funds your working capital. So the business just sort of funds itself, makes the balance sheet really a structural advantage rather than any potential source of risk. I think that's the primary advantage. But where it can get even more powerful is when you use it to enable the so-called flywheel to reinvest in the business and make it more pow- more powerful and more attractive than it would otherwise be. That's when things, I think, get, get really, really interesting. But look, I, I see tons of cases today where I think it's gone way too far. I, I, I hate to harp on certain things again, but look, it's never worked in fitness. I mean, gyms and health clubs are obviously membership subscription style businesses, and they've always been terrible businesses. And there are some very high profile, supposedly disruptive tech oriented businesses right now, where in my opinion, the metrics just make no sense. I mean, if you can't understand the metrics of the subscription business, if you can't say that the subscription is sort of shortening the time to pay back and it's a win for both sides, it just doesn't make any sense. And I see tons of that right now in the fitness business. In transportation, you know, look, I understand the utopian vision of having a subscription to a car service where I don't need to own an automobile with low usage rates and I can just call up a car on demand whenever I need it. And we'll probably get there at some point, but I think that's a ways off. And and it certainly hasn't worked at any kind of scale in things like fractional memberships, subscriptions to private jets. I mean, we all know what's happened at NetJets. It's, it's happened to plenty of others. I mean, it's just not been a very good business. And I don't see any reason to believe why it's going to be any different with automobiles. Um, healthcare is an interesting one. I think there, you know, there are subscription kind of concierge style uh, services for healthcare that are interesting. I'm not an expert in the economics there by any stretch. I think healthcare is probably so crazy and upside down and irrational. I don't know that I'd have a whole lot of faith and how that'll play out, but it's certainly an interesting education's another one where it would seem awfully ripe for this sort of thing. You can have a subscription style business and, and look, there are plenty of them out there already. I think it's been mixed at best so far as to how successful they've been. That could be pretty interesting. Going back to food and food delivery, what we were talking about earlier, kind of ties into transportation. It's pretty close to related. So um, those are all kind of TBD. Uh, and I'm not sure that the uh, prices being discounted and the securities of a lot of those related businesses see it as a TBD. They sort of see success as a foregone conclusion, which always gets me nervous. So I don't know. But look, I'm I'm very interested in this sort of business. I, it would be fascinating to run a back test, not for investment purposes, but really just for curiosity's sake. You could probably have put together a world-beating ETF in the last few years if you limited it just to subscription businesses. It would probably kill just about anything else out there on a net return basis. Um, from here, TBD, we'll see about that. But I'm curious what you guys think, you know, what what will last from this little boom in subscription businesses? Obviously, the concept is powerful, but it has to be applied correctly in the right circumstances with the right people, with the right unit economics. What do you guys like to see in terms of those unit economics or KPIs or how you'd go about trying to value things? And, you know, what are some some other good examples of of businesses out there that that do this well? Or, or that do it poorly, I guess. 
Yeah. So I am a big fan of the subscription business model. I feel like that goes without saying for anyone who likes looking at business in the abstract sense. So, I mean, I'm stating the obvious there, but I've been focusing a lot on some of these subscription businesses and I think it's pretty interesting. So like you mentioned the athletic, I'm a sub of the athletic. Yeah, um, when you're talking about Costco, I no longer shop at Costco because it's kind of a pain in the butt for my life, but I would obviously love to, but there are a couple of interesting things that you tapped into. Um, this idea that your membership, uh, you know, in CLD in the book Influence, I think you'd call that commitment, right? The second you lay down that subscription uh, style cash for it, you have committed to spend at least some future amount of your uh, daily needs at Costco. And it's similar to how Amazon Prime structured. And I think it's no coincidence that Nick Sleep, who termed the coin, uh, who coined the term uh, scale econ- economy shared, um, use both to kind of illuminate that concept. Um, you mentioned Peloton, uh, well, by implication, right? The, the <laughs> fitness. Uh, I knew where you're going with that. I'm actually yeah. going to take the other side. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew someone who was uh, closely related to, I know someone who's closely related to one of the VCs who was early in Peloton. And when I first heard about it, I was like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Um, When I next heard about it, I'm like, that was the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Um, I got a Peloton this year and I think it's freaking awesome. And, you know, I think they've tapped into something really interesting. And I think it's important that I, for for myself, not in a a broader sense, it's important that I was like open-minded to reconsidering, you know, how and why. Um, I think they do a couple things that are really right. They do have a platform where they could explore um, these adjacent possibilities. They could try to be something that's more than just a bike. They could be at the center of your effort to be more fit. And now it doesn't mean that everyone is going to actually head out there and try to be more fit. One of the really interesting things about gym membership is most people don't go, um, but they keep paying. And why do they keep paying? Because they know in their heart of hearts that the second they stop paying, their dream of exercising more is done. So behaviorally, you know, you, you want to think you want to exercise. However, you don't want to make it an impossibility by stopping to pay. Um, so that's one of the powers of subscription. Like people in certain areas, actually, where they don't even want to engage with the product, maintain their commitment for some sort of behavioral uh, reason. Um, I'm pretty interested in a couple of businesses now undergoing their own uh, subscription transformations, uh, Disney and Nintendo being two. Uh, Nintendo is not exactly fully uh, you know, in, in the same vein as Disney, but they're pursuing their own kind of subscription offering with Nintendo Cloud that gives you more collaborative capabilities and more power in playing certain games. I find that interesting. Um, I have talked uh, or talked, I, I have tweeted incessantly about how badly Twitter needs a subscription offering. And I think one thing that you've tapped into here, Phil, is this general idea that people everywhere they go are a little more willing to uh, enroll in subscriptions, that subscription products have proliferated. A lot of subscription products are really good offerings and people have had great experiences. So they're more open in general to subscribing things. And because this scale the internet affords uh, various uh, subscriptions, um, it's a lot cheaper than when, you know, like the New York Times was the one subscription offering available for someone who lived in a county surrounding uh, Manhattan. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting, right? With scale, you could have a pretty good margin at a low price and get a lot of people on there. I think Twitter badly needs a subscription offering because whether they like it or not, people are engaging 
uh, with subscriptions that are effectively built off of Twitter, whether that be Substack or something like Primo Social or even OnlyFans, whatever it is, like, you know, people are going to do this. And I think it's important to empower uh, content creators in that way. Um, and then, you know, the last thing, there are subscription-like things out there that aren't exactly subscriptions, but tap into this CLDNI commitment kind of notion. Um, my recent obsession is Naked Wines. It's like one of my favorite new positions I found. It's like an amazing combination of outright quantifiable, identifiable cheapness and a really beautiful uh, business model um, that's in the right spot at the right time. Um, and it was a slow hunch. It took a really long time for them to get to this place. But you know, now that it's taken off, it's really going to the right place. Uh, but it's subscription-like in that you commit to $40 per uh, month. That you don't actually get wine on a periodic cadence. What you do is you are building an accruing account that you could eventually spend out of. And I think that's an interesting approach where it's more like there is a degree of control and there's a degree of discovery that you could tap into yourself. Um, but the business benefits from the subscription, like what, what, what Phil mentioned about how, you know, you get uh, working capital funded by your customers so they could actually finance their inventory and tell winemakers, you know, a pretty good approximation of exactly how much demand to expect to come across the platform. All this long way of saying, yeah, subscriptions are awesome. They come in many different uh, shapes and sizes and many different industries and all different kinds of areas. Um, and I think, you know, by and large, they're way more good than bad. Um, as far as the KPIs and how you value them, I mean, I, I really do think a lot of it depends on, you know, what kind of subscription you're talking about um, and what sort of uh, platform opportunities there are beyond the subscription itself. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty simple when you have an idea of the average customer lifespan, when you have an idea of how much of the selling and marketing, sales and marketing goes toward customer acquisition, you could get a pretty good read on what the actual contribution margin is. And I would put like, you know, things like R&D against contribution margin in a, in a subscription business that needs to constantly, you know, research and develop their product. Um, so I'd be, you know, as conservative as possible with the unit economics. Um, but once you have an idea of how long a customer is going to last, um, what sort of customer margin you get, and you know what sort of revenue you're going to get over that lifespan, you could discount and create a very clean-looking value uh, of what they're worth. So uh, that, that's my long-winded answer to the questions you put out there. No, that's great. I appreciate it. And I don't. I didn't mean to keep beating the dead horse that is Peloton or the not dead horse, as the case may be. So, no, it's a fun one, man. I, is, I beat myself over is, how stupid my perspective was at first, too. I sorry, stupid well, might be the wrong word, but over how close-minded I was when I first heard about it. And that's what you know. I gotta say, I mean, I I still feel like I'm. I don't have a. I don't have a horse in the race to keep butchering the analogy, but you know, look, I. I used one for about two years. My old office building before I moved down the street last year had one. So I used one, you know, a couple times a week. I got to see it firsthand without even having to pay for it. I get it. It's a it's a good product. I get the social aspect. I get the stay-at-home aspect. And this was all pre-COVID. I get all of that. But my point, I guess, is just that unlike food, unlike media, unlike retail, consumer products, whatever, there's never been a subscription model that's worked in fitness for any period of time. And I just don't see any real savings. I don't see any real value. The only thing that's even marginally new is the is the sort of competitive community friend social aspect. 
And I just don't see if you can't. And, and again, the working capital issues moot here. It's not like the company's self-funding at this point. It's not even close. And then you get to the point of a 13-year customer value or customer life in calculating lifetime customer value. I mean, if I could bet against, I, I guess you could by shorting it. I'm not going to, but um, I, I see vanishingly few people that will still be using a, a Peloton 13 years from now, let alone paying $40 a month for a, for a Peloton, despite the commitment bias, despite the sunk cost of spending $2,500 on a bike, despite all that. I mean, people, to your point, people do spend on gym memberships that they don't use. So I'm not saying that next year or even the following year, everybody's going to wake up and have this bike sitting in their basement and then just mass abandon it. But look, I mean, Planet Fitness is another great example. I mean, these are all you know, roughly similar businesses. A, a gym membership is a subscription business and there's never been any business like that, any sort of studio business or whatever, unless you're talking about being the franchisor that's ever worked. And so whether I, I just, anyway, I don't see any business there in, in that sort of world where the economics make any sense that it's going to really persist. But, you know, I could certainly be wrong. It is, it is an appealing product. I mean, I, you know, I like fitness, believe me, I'm, I've had plenty of gym memberships. I've got a home gym. If under different circumstances, I could see how it would work. I just, it seems very unlikely in my well, view. Planet Fitness is a, you know, six plus billion dollar business. That's not terrible, right? No, I'm not saying it's terrible by any stretch. And Peloton has certainly worked for its venture capitalists. And it's, uh, but I think when you boil down to what's actually there, what's sustainable, what's actually working, I, I mean, I would call Planet Fitness like the anti-Costco frankly, in just about everything that they do. So, um, and, and right, like, good luck canceling. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of problems there and I, I don't think Peloton deserves to be in that category necessarily. And, and, you know, look, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that because of the health and wellness trend, because of the stay at home trend, all the things that are being forced upon people, I would expect Peloton to grow and do better over the next year or two than it is doing today. But I just wholeheartedly reject the fact that 13 years from now, someone who signed up in 2020 is still going to be paying for that subscription. Have you seen how much they expanded their offering beyond just uh, oh, yeah. cycling? With the, with the treadmill and all the, all the yoga. Oh, no, stuff. I mean more in terms of like the kind of classes, not the hardware. So like they added yoga classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yoga strength. stuff, I've actually tried doing it. I think it's great. And um you know, look, I think that fits into what you said earlier, which is the hopes and dreams that are always being sold in fitness. And again, it's not like we haven't <laughs> had a, a pretty long history of people deciding like, boy, I'm either stuck at home or I've gained a few pounds or I've gotten older. I'm going to try to get fit. I mean, the, the, the world is littered with the carcass of failed or just stale and burned out fitness companies. And so again, I think I was reading this interesting thing that somebody put on Twitter the other day, um, Necker Cap put it up, and it was this interesting tidbit that I'd never seen. I mean, we all probably know about the speech that Buffett gave at Allen and Company's conference in in 1999. Um, and one of the things he famously talked about was that if you knew that the history of the automobile was going to be so amazing in 1900, all you would have thought you had to do was buy every auto company in the world and you'd be set and rich for life. And instead, he produced this massive list of all the hundreds of automobile manufacturers and car-related companies that had failed. And the interesting part of it was that Jeff Bezos actually went up to him at that conference and asked for the list. 
and was so interested in this concept of how to avoid failure. And I feel like the same sort of thing is kind of true in fitness. Like if you had told somebody 20 years ago, like we're going to have this lockdown, people are going to get so interested in fitness. You're going to have this technological revolution. You'd think all I have to do is like buy every like fitness fad and I'm going to get rich. And it just doesn't work. Like the, the, the list of fitness company failures is a mile long. And I'm struggling to think of even one truly successful fitness company that's really persevered for more than 10 years, let's say. I'm sure I'm missing at least a couple, but it's the the failure to success ratio is pretty staggering. So I'll just uh, throw in a few observations on this uh, topic and maybe touch on some of what you guys have said. Um, I definitely remember to Phil's point in the early 2000s when uh, a lot of software companies were moving from a licensed sales to a subscription model. And um, believe it or not, investors actually did not appreciate uh, a lot of those moves and the stocks got hit because reported revenue uh, dropped significantly, obviously, as uh, as you were kind of doing that transition. So big contrast to where we are today. Um, one thing that I, I, I feel like is maybe worth pointing out with subscription businesses um, Almost all the subscription businesses that I can think of that have worked really well have extremely high incremental gross margin. It seems to me that it's much harder to do a successful subscription business with a low uh, margin product. Um, Just as a kind of really simple example to help with this uh, point is if I take just MOI Global uh, community and let's say the online or or a membership you know, costs uh, a certain amount of money um, to have online access, get content and so forth online, that's fine. But I cannot do a um, subscription membership for every um, event that MOI Global does in real life where there's um, hotel stays, there's food, there's so forth. So subscription works well uh, for something that's super highly profitable business. Now, I feel like the model has been overdone, Phil, uh, to your point, like a lot of these monthly box subscriptions now are just kind of ridiculous. I mean, things that you don't really need every month and it just creates a ton of overconsumptions and and trash, frankly. Um, With regard to gyms, one thing that, and and I'd love your perspective, guys, on this, because I'm not sure I've thought it through completely, but I feel like with um, physical gyms, having that subscription model um, really killed their business model, actually. It killed their profitability because um, they basically kind of um, optimized to that kind of the revenue that was coming in. And I think probably um, competed away what would have been a profitable business because they thought, wow, great, I start a gym, I'm going to have a lot of uh, people paying me a subscription who are not even showing up. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the competitive market uh, does what it does. And it basically drove down profitability of these businesses to the point where they were basically dependent on their least satisfied customers, those people who were paying the subscription still, but weren't even showing up. And I feel like it's a horrible business if if you're basically most dependent on the customers that like you the least. And I remember there are also some examples in um, campus-based for-profit education 
where a lot of those models, because they got the money up front, the tuition money, and it was kind of a subscription-based model because the students would return for quite a while, um, that a lot of those uh, companies were not profitable because they had such a great cash flow um, uh, format or, or model, right? Because you'd get this negative working capital, and as long as you were growing, you were generating cash. And so these guys were growing without optimizing for profitability. So they were actually growing unprofitably. And the minute you stop growing, you have a collapsing house of cards. Um, you know, one other thing, one other with subscription-based models is a vacation ownership. You know, I thought about, should I get a timeshare in something? And, you know, basically what I figured out was, I don't want that because the company that sells me that, like we were on a vacation in the Caribbean and, you know, um, all of those big hotel companies have their timeshare um, sales teams and so forth. And I just thought, hey, if I have a timeshare, they're going to be doing the minimum necessary, you know, in terms of reinvestment in these properties and so forth, because they want to maximize their profit once I buy this timeshare. And so I'd, I'd much rather opt for actually booking a hotel stay where the hotel has to serve me well every time I'm there. Um, you know, I, similar reason why with MY Global, I would never go with offering a five-year or, or a lifetime membership because quite honestly, um, if you don't have the self-discipline, you would end up spending that money and then you would end up skimping on the membership because you don't have the financial means. So you got to match kind of the money coming into the service or the product. Otherwise, it's actually becomes a lose-lose. Um, and, and so maybe in terms of Peloton, just to kind of give my two cents on this, I do think it's very different from a traditional fitness gym because um, those guys really do not have the kind of margins and the especially incremental gross margin that a Peloton could have, um, where basically it doesn't matter to them how many people are, you know, taking those online courses or so forth. So I could see it work with, with Peloton. Um, and then last point, just to, to ask a question, you know, is there really a substantive difference between businesses that have a, um, you know, subscription model in the sense that the customer signs up to pay a regular fee or businesses that have a quasi subscription model like an Airbnb where basically you're paying each time you go but if you really love Airbnb you're going to go back through Airbnb for every vacation so that kind of becomes almost like a subscription based model or a DoorDash for that matter so that's it uh, from me no, that, those are fascinating comments, and and again, I don't, I didn't mean to pick on the the fitness industry. I, I will say, I think your point is spot on about needing really high incremental, uh, you know, either contribution or gross margin to to make this work. And, and in the case of both physical gyms and Peloton, I mean, it clearly doesn't meet that test. I'm sure the bulls would argue that we're just around the corner from that happening. But I mean, if if you're not seeing the margins this year you know, it sort of begs the question of, of when would it be? And I did look up uh, Planet Fitness, which is, a you know, also a pretty interesting case study. And, and there, if you get, throw 2020 out, it's such a crazy year. But from 2016 to through 2019, sales pretty much doubled. And you actually saw margins 
flat to actually somewhat down um, at the gross and operating line. So, it, you know, and again, that's that's now a company trading at, I guess, 17 times sales. Um, it makes a little bit of money, I guess. But I mean, I don't know. That color me, color me pretty skeptical there. And I guess without needing to necessarily even go into you know, the real nitty gritty of what works and why, which is, of course, what you'd want to do and have to do if you're going to put any actual money to work. But about timeshares, I mean, look, I think the big lesson of timeshares is that the the right trade there was to invest in the the lawyers that were going to pop up to help clients sue the timeshares to get out of their commitments, because that seems to be the real the real growth there. I mean, I think the the horror stories in the timeshare industry are so legendary at this point that we don't need to go into it. But that's that's what I mean. Like, there's not necessarily like a a lot of real rocket science going into like businesses that have figured this out and businesses where it just doesn't work. It very clearly works in media, retail, re, re, media, and retail and software some industrial stuff, some consumer stuff really doesn't tend to work in real estate, doesn't tend to work in travel, transportation, fitness, that kind of stuff. So I guess that would be my comment on it. And and to your point, if it's not win-win, if you're taking advantage of people, if you're exploiting a mismatch between, you know, they're using the product and they're paying you for the product, that just can't end well for people over time. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot, a lot to unpack in here, and some interesting points. I mean, John, what you said about the really high incremental margins is huge, and I think it gets a lot. You know, the the models we mentioned that don't really work well tend to be, you know, in the physical world, and the models that do work well, you're selling bytes and bits. So the incrementality of margin is a lot better uh, in the digital world. So the model therefore works better. Um, on Peloton, you're not seeing high incremental margins yet on the subscription side of the offering. But I think, you know, if you peel back the onion a little bit, it, it is actually there. Um, and by the way, I sound like I'm defending Peloton a lot in this sense. I'm not an investor in Peloton and I'm probably not close to being one. I think it's a little richly valued for my blood. Um, but when you peel back the onion, if you think of it more in terms of like, you know, for each class, when you have an install base and a thousand people uh, attend the class, you know, your cost for the class is fixed. But when you then have 3,000 people attend that class, it's, um, you know, the cost per person in that class is is going to be a lot less. Um, so they have really expanded their offering to a lot of new verticals and greatly increased the number of classes, but they're not going to have to do that forever. Um, at a certain point, they'll never have to like invest in incremental uh, amount of new classes and verticals than before. So you spread that over a much larger install base of users and you know, the incremental margin should be really high. That point on the gyms, though, I just want to like, one of the really interesting emergent uh, subscription business models that I guess with COVID is kind of on hold um, was this uh, subscription called ClassPass, which gave you access to, you know, you subscribe and, you know, whatever you pay, there's a lower and a higher tier. You get access to X number of classes per month or year or whatever, you know, whichever plan you did. And those classes were across a member network of gyms, soul cycles, uh, whatever, you know, other concept you have. And the idea was they were offering something to these uh, gyms and studios for um, filling some of that uh, wastage space. But that's a really big point. You know, I, I do think that's a really big problem for the industry. And perhaps there was a subscription that was ready to kind of help solve the problem for the physical places while creating a massively scaled, like, good business model on its own. But I guess we'll have to wait a couple of years to see. 
Yeah, and I should have clarified too. I don't have a position long. I'm not short anything. So I, I don't think I have any position to my knowledge in anything that I've mentioned today, uh, certainly directly. So that's that's good. This is all an intellectual exercise. And I really appreciate when Elliot can push back on some of this stuff. I think it makes the conversation more, more way more interesting and, and enlightening. And, and I would love to figure out what I'm missing and be proven wrong in a lot of these cases. And I think to your point, Elliot, one of the things that would be more interesting and potentially prove me wrong would be just an explosion in potential app-only subscribers to something like Peloton, where you're right, the incremental margins there are off the charts. It really does scale. Um, you know, I think one of the things that really holds this thing up is the need to buy a $2,000 bike or a $5,000 treadmill or whatever. And look, I so again, I've used the, I think the, the app and the fitness class model can make tons of sense. Um, it, it fulfills a need for professional instruction. It fulfills a need for discipline and rigor and competition and social and all this stuff. So I totally get that. And I'm actually surprised at um, how few of those types of things have popped up. I mean, I guess there are so many free options on YouTube. I've taken advantage of a bunch of them. There's some really high quality stuff out there for YouTube that's either free or ad supported or on YouTube TV. So maybe that's the answer. I don't know. But and by uh, the way, can we add one more interesting wrinkle to this? The the sure. bike itself is expensive. It's like a mid $2,000 bike, except right. with a firm buy now, pay later financing, they've turned even the heart, you know, the physical thing into a subscription like <laughs> product. No, and those buy now, pay later things are a whole other world that we should, I'll save that for a future podcast, I guess, because that is a, a very interesting point with rates at zero. And, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how much real share they can take from credit card companies or consumer finance companies, because that sort of stuff is popping up everywhere right now. It's really exploding. Yeah, it would be interesting to do an overview of the entire landscape because some of them offer different value props than others. But I think it just goes to show the subscription subscriptionification of everything where like people are starting to think more in those terms and are far more amenable to um, having, you know, a commitment beyond the date at which you decide to do something, um, financially speaking. And, you know, that's a big part of how uh, Peloton's able to make their relative value pitch. It's like, you know, we could finance this over three years at 0% and then you compare it to your local gym membership and you're right. actually saving money. Do you know how many of their bikes are sold that way? Um, I think the vast majority, and I think in, really? in a firm's S1, over 30% of a firm's revenue actually comes from Peloton itself. Hmm. Wild, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I guess I'll jump in here, um, and we're kind of already out of time almost, but uh, I guess we will still address this uh, listener uh, question quickly, where basically I tweeted about Jim Chanos back in the day when he was short Blockbuster, making the point that anything bits and bytes would get disrupted, and uh I really believe I'm seeing more and more um, data points and, and you know news out there that would put banking and a lot of parts of insurance into this bucket of bits and bytes. And uh, so that makes me not very bullish on banking and most of insurance going forward. And the listener basically was wanted a little bit more color on that. And I guess from my standpoint, um, you know, this Stripe Treasury announcement was kind of the 
the um, trigger for for my tweet where basically Stripe is uh, working with uh, platforms like Shopify to enable them to provide um, basically banking services to their customers. Uh, so a Spotify mer a Shopify merchant um, wouldn't need to go and sign up for a bank account uh, somewhere, but could actually get that bank account within Shopify itself uh, in, a in a way and everything uh, that needs to be done would happen behind the scenes. Um, we're basically, we're kind of in this API economy, right? Um, each of these platforms has certain capabilities and Stripe is, is really doing amazingly in this regard in terms of kind of providing these interfaces and APIs. So they're not actually providing this to the end consumer, but they're providing it to their partners like Shopify that can then enable their merchants um, to, to do this. And if you think about it, I mean, let's take um, myself with, with MOI Global. I hate going to the bank. You know, there's really no point for me to go to a bank anymore. And meanwhile, I love Stripe. I love having that account. It works great with an online business. And then all I need is an ATM card and is a credit card. And so I, I imagine merchants that are on Shopify or other platforms uh, feel the same way. Why walk into a physical bank branch anymore? You know, um, so I just, uh, sure, there's a ton of legacy reasons why you would do that. Um, but I really feel like banks and insurance companies need to think very hard about their long-term competitive advantage and what they can do that cannot be done easily online. So with insurance companies, something like auto insurance, I think is going to get just completely commoditized, especially if as you get... Um, um, autonomous driving and all of that data. Think about all the data that even Tesla is, is collecting at this point. Um, they can probably price insurance better than a lot of uh, auto insurance companies already. Um, so on the insurance side, something like what Ajit Jain does at Berkshire, that's going to have value for a very long time to come because that's non-standard. It's um, kind of, you know, you cannot model it so well. Um, and And in banking, I'm frankly having a hard time to think of products where that are not going to get commoditized over time. Um, you know, somebody showed a a kind of a, a schematic or a chart that Stripe put out as part of this announcement that says we have these bank partners, and and the point was, well, look, the banks still have a role to play. Yeah, for now, and they're being completely commoditized because Shopify doesn't, in the end, care. If, if in the background there's Chase or Barclays or Goldman Sachs or whoever. Um, so, you know, the banks are kind of being strung along for the ride, um, but their their future is really uh, in peril as far as I'm concerned. Any thoughts uh, from you guys? Yeah, well, you left out the uh, digital wallets even with, uh, you know, where that's going which is pretty interesting, right? I mean, uh, people could get direct deposit from their employer now. Um, people were able to receive the government stimulus directly into their cash app or into PayPal. Um, and these companies are building way more functionality. They're creating, um, you know, super apps that could do a whole lot more than just merely uh, be a wallet for transactions online. You know, say what you will about adding Bitcoin trading, but Dan Shulman uh, just the other day at Goldman Sachs said that the average person who trades Bitcoin checks their wallet 
I think he said twice a day. Don't quote me on that. It was somewhere close to that. Um, you know, and you think about a company who, uh, at their time of spinoff from eBay in 2015, the average person used PayPal 17 times a year. And here you have a product that now people are looking at opening the app twice a day. And what sort of power you get, you start seeing things like when you open the PayPal app on the bottom and add to go into uh, subscribe to Spotify, another subscription here, and get uh, three months free if you do it through PayPal. Think about how valuable that damn real estate is within the PayPal app. Um, and you know just exactly what, where, and how these apps are trying to engage with you uh, and, and capture like all your banking needs and a whole lot more. Um, I think it's really interesting, really powerful. Um, and your point, your tweet resonated with me right away. Yeah, so I think I would agree for the most part. I think anything like this is certainly prone for disruption. I think, John, your point about not liking the the physical part of interacting with a bank or even just the application and the processing part of interacting with a bank is certainly correct. I think it it sort of bears the same hallmarks as physical retail versus online and e-commerce. So I think all of that is 100% valid. The only pushback I would I would have is that it is way harder than it looks. So it's not just tech, it's compliance, it's anti-money laundering, it's data security, it's customer service, it's heavily, heavily regulated. You cannot just start screwing around with people's money. Like if you don't ship them a book on time, that's one thing. If you screw up their their financial account and their financial life, that's a whole other thing. And it's it's just way more difficult. So I would be enormously skeptical of any of these so-called fintech companies that come along with no scale, no credibility, no history, no track record, and immediately start promising the moon and the stars. Where I would be enormously optimistic would be in the case of a company like Stripe or a company like like Shopify, for example, the, the two of them together even better, where they have a long history, at least in, in relative terms. I mean, many years or over a decade, I think in both cases now, where they've already proven to know what the hell they're doing in their core business. They're enormously successful at it. They're run by extremely talented, bright people and where they have the ability to pound away because this is truly a pound the rock kind of exercise. This is not going to happen quickly. You need strong, powerful companies chipping away at this for years and decades before you're going to have any real, I think, tangible progress. And I think it'll be slow and then it'll come all at once, sort of like we've seen in the ebbs and flows of online processes and all sorts of different things. So, um, look, I think money has always been a commodity, right? I don't understand the argument that it's ever not been a commodity, but certainly the problem is that it's a commodity until you get into things like dealing with customer service and, and reliability and functionality. And so that's where you need really powerful, really deep, really intelligent powerful companies like like Stripe and Shopify to come along and do this because it, a lot of these fintech companies, in, in my opinion, in the last five years were just a total joke. I mean, they just had no real prayer of delivering on what they said they were going to do. So um, look, I, I, I will also push back a tiny bit in that I don't think you're going to immediately unwind the plumbing of... Barclays or JP Morgan or whoever in the global financial system, I think that sort of misses the fact that it's really, really hard and really, really complicated to shovel money around the world to every corner of the world every month and every day. I mean, look, Western Union's been written off for dead 
for many, many years and they still persist. And there are still millions and millions of people using paper checks every day, despite the fact that that's been a miserable, insecure, painful process forever. So I think this will make enormous progress over the next 10 and 20 years. And I think at the end of that 10 and 20 years, you'll still look back and see tons and tons of work yet to come. Great. Well, thank you so much, guys, for for that perspective. I hope we answered uh, the question, and I'm sure we'll address it in in future episodes as well, because this is just such a huge uh, topic, and it's going to stay with us. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Another great episode. Thanks, Phil and Elliot. And as I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, uh, we do very much look forward to having Chris Bloomstrand back with us uh, occasionally in the future as well, whenever uh, he can uh, find the time and uh, the attention to be with us. Thanks so much. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.